You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. O blessed Lord, who hast caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So indeed, this class, these, these four weeks of class, the first three weeks, um, first two weeks, and then this week and next week, I've titled them all Inwardly Digesting Romans, taking um, that phrase from this beautiful prayer in our prayer book as a way of looking into understanding how do we not only learn Scripture, how do we not only study and read Scripture, but how do we then turn it around, um, allow it to soak, as I like to say, into our bloodstream. When I was was an actor, you really had to know, know your part so well that you could memorize your lines and not even have to think about them. If you're trying to think about your lines when you're on stage, you're in trouble because then you can't focus on being the character that you are and doing the things in the way that the character that you are would do them. You can't actually act and focus on the heart and head aspects of that if you're trying to remember your lines. So your lines had to get so much into your bloodstream. That's what we said. You get it into your bloodstream so that they are your words. No longer are they the words of the character that you're portraying or the character that you're playing. Now suddenly you own the words. And this is true for scripture itself. Our lives are changed markedly when we learn the words, when we learn them so well that they go into our bloodstream. And so this has been my experience with Romans. I had the opportunity to memorize it as a young girl, as a um, preteen and teenager. And then um, it's come back again and again over, my li- over the course of my life. And especially as I've mentioned this past year, as I've been teaching the women on Monday mornings from Romans, the verses that I had memorized came back to me. And, and it was so rich. And so what I've done is I've put memorizing verses for memorization on the back of your handout so that if you did want to memorize some high points theologically of the passages that we're studying in this class on Sunday mornings, then I'd encourage you, did you see I made the paper a little heavier than normal paper? So you could just clip it out and it would withstand time a little bit if you wanted to tape it to your mirror. Um, okay, so... We're going to dig in. We've talked already about Paul's presentation of the bad news in chapter 1 and chapter 2, seeking to convict all human beings, regardless of how well they've lived, of their own sin, their own rebellion against God. And then he's going to go on from there to talk about the good news. And for him, the good news is um, the good news of God's love for us in Jesus Christ, that God has sent um, his own son to take on human flesh and specifically to die. And not just to die, but to die in such a way that he would take upon himself the, the just punishment for our own sins, for the sin of the whole world. And that thereby God's justice would be met um, the, the requirement, the just 
requirement of God's justice would be met, but then also because God himself is the one fulfilling his own requirement, he demonstrates that he is a God of mercy. He demonstrates this righteousness that's shown all throughout the Old Testament, but that's understood in a different way, not only his holiness and his justness, his rightness in punishing sinners, but also his mercy, his righteousness in that he delivers the ungodly from our own selves and our own sin and the consequences of our sin. And so that verse, um, chapter 3, verse 26, that, G- that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. At the cross, God is perfectly um, demonstrating his justice and also his mercy. Um, those two seemingly diametrically opposed characteristics are, are at work, are displayed in that beautiful paradox of the cross. So Paul goes on, he goes on in chapter 4 to uh, embark upon describing what what righteousness it is that we have, that the righteous, those who believe in Jesus, are actually the ones who live by faith, and the righteousness is counted to us regardless of what we do. And he went on, he went on in chapters 5 through 7 to describe, well, what now? And I love how he goes from arguing and very rational and very third-person singular grammatically to this exultant we. Now we have this hope. Um, That's why I prefer chapters 5 through 7 because they make me feel good. Chapters 1 through 3, you know, it's good and it's this wonderful argument and this beautiful construction theologically that Paul has of um, narrating our salvation and arguing for our salvation. But then chapters 5 through 8 especially, it's this exultant we. We're rejoicing in what God has done and that hope of our future glory, um, not only this past um, this past wonderful salvation, excuse me, salvation that he's wrought through Jesus' death on the cross. We are freed um, from the penalty of sin through God's action on our behalf in the past. And we have the hope that one day we'll be freed from the very presence of sin in our lives. And yet now we live in between those two times. And we followed up, we left off in chapter 7. Paul has talked about um, how the good news relates to sin, relates to death, relates to law, the law, and our relationship with each one of those things in this life. And he ends in chapter 7 talking about and lamenting this overlap of the ages, the overlap of the old age of sin and death with the new age of God's grace to us in Christ Jesus and the eternal life, the life, not only eternal, but also abundant life that we have through the power of the Holy Spirit. Those two ages overlap and the the intersection of that overlap runs right through our own lives, um, right through our own psyches. And Paul gets to that in chapter 7 when he laments this struggle between the sin, the thing he doesn't want to do that he does, and, um, and the law, the thing he wants to do, that obedience to God that his heart um, spontaneously wants to do, and he is at war within himself. And yet even now, even in this torn life, this lifelong struggle as Christians, God is victorious, and God is powerful, and God is our deliverer. And that's how he ends chapter 7, which is a great segue into chapter 8. So I'm going to begin chapter 8. If you have your Bible with you, it would really help you to follow along in chapter 8. 
Paul begins with one of my favorite verses. I think I put it as a a verse for memorization. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is one to bring back again and again. You memorize this one so you can remind yourself of it when you feel condemned, when you feel that weight of shame um, because of what we've done. Remember, shame is different than guilt. Guilt is that, oh my goodness, I've done something terrible. And that confession and that absolution frees us from the guilt. And we're free. We're able to receive um, the forgiveness of God in his absolution and keep going with our lives. But that shame sometimes is um, the accusation of the evil one who accuses us. Not only have you done bad, but you are bad. That's what the devil says and whispers in our ear. Um, And we hear it through so many other voices, too. So this condemnation, Paul starts out first in chapter 8 by talking about this condemnation and how there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he's going to bring it back at the end of the chapter. And the way he's going to bring it back, he's then also going to go on to say that there is now also no separation from the love of God for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And the two that go hand in hand. So again, condemnation, it's not simply the opposite of justification. Paul is not here reiterating what he's already said in chapter 3, but it refers specifically to the punishment following the giving of a sentence. The sentence has been passed. The sentence from the eternal judge, God himself, is not guilty. And now um, we're free. We don't have to serve a sentence. In other words, we're not in jail. Christians are not in jail. Some people think, why do you have the confession of sin at the beginning of every service? It's so, oh, it's so bad. I mean, you have such low self-esteem. No, it's that freedom. We are exercising our freedom, our freedom to humble ourselves and confess, knowing that God, our Father, is gracious and merciful, and he will stand us back up on our feet um, with forgiveness and send us forth into the world in freedom. There is this freedom, freedom from shame, freedom from guilt. Assurance of salvation pervades this whole chapter 8. There's no condemnation, again, at the beginning and no separation at the end. I love this one quote. Jesus was for us in the place of condemnation. We are in him. Now we are in him where all condemnation has spent its force. We are no longer condemned because in Christ, as Paul says, sin has been condemned in our place. Um, Paul goes on, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There's a great promise here. The promise is that um, we would not live according to, um, with the law hanging over us and with that constant awareness of our own failure to keep the law. There is that, but we confess that and then we're free. The promise is actually that we're living according to the Spirit and God's Holy Spirit is what will empower us to keep and obey the law. Um, about the law, the great F.F. F. Bruce says, quotes, he quotes another little verse of something which is so beautiful and he didn't say where it came from but here it is to run and work the law commands 
yet gives me neither feet nor hands, but better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. The law cannot produce in us what it demands. It cannot produce that holiness that God requires. The hearing of the law, again, doesn't bring about that fruit of righteousness, but God delights to bring that righteousness in us through the power of the Holy Spirit and through that gospel proclamation of our freedom in Christ Jesus, of the forgiveness that we have in him. Again, here's another quote, this time from someone with the last name Hook, H-O-O-K-E, that I've never heard, from, heard of, from a book called The Siege Perilous. A vine does not produce grapes by an act of parliament or Congress. They are the fruit of the vine's own life. So the conduct which conforms to the standard of the kingdom is not produced by any demand, not even God's, but it is the fruit of that divine nature with which God gives us as the result of what he has done in and by Christ. That divine nature, that swapping, God has given us um, Jesus, the inheritance of all of what belongs to Jesus, that eternal life, and that life present with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit is mentioned here again and again. This is how we, um, in the midst of that overlap of the ages, this is how we ask God to overcome us with his love and his joy and his peace and his own holiness is through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was mentioned briefly by Paul in chapter 5, verse 5, for the first time. But here in chapter 8, in verses 4 through 11, Paul mentions the Holy Spirit 10 times. That's a signifier. This is important. Who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do? Well, the Holy Spirit battles against and conquers the hostility and the power of the flesh. The Holy Spirit rescues the believer from captivity to sin and death, both spiritual and physical. And the Holy Spirit, as we see here, accomplishes what the law itself could not do. The Holy Spirit enables the enactment or the fulfillment of the law through the believer. Again, by the power of the gospel, it's the Holy Spirit that brings about this work in our lives, this work of holiness. When we see ourselves doing things better than we ever thought we could, and, or we see it and it's almost as though it's not us doing it. Um, and whenever you do do a good thing, it's good to separate ourselves from it, not letting our left hand know what our right hand is doing, right? Because then we'll take credit for it and take that hand and pat ourselves on the back. Um, but the Holy Spirit, when we attribute to the Holy Spirit any good thing that we see ourselves doing, we're giving glory and praise to God and we're inviting him to do more because he knows we're not going to take the credit for it. If you don't know if you have the Holy Spirit, then I would ask you, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And if you believe in Jesus Christ, then the Holy Spirit is yours. He's the gift that God delights to give. He's the gift of God's own spirit dwelling within us, being poured out upon us. The Holy Spirit is the rightful possession of all those who believe in Christ and have been baptized into his death and resurrection. Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 11, verses 11 through 13, he says a parable, he tells a parable, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is in the context of that ask, seek, 
knock passage and teaching and how wonderful yes we are to ask god through the power of, through through the intercession of jesus christ for all of the things that we want or desire but above all we should ask for the biggest gift of all which is god's own holy spirit um, so if you're if you've never received the holy spirit if you don't know that you have the holy spirit all you do is you ask god and you say god would you give me your holy spirit um, the coming of the holy spirit upon us happens many times it's not just like a warm feeling it's not kumbaya horizontally around a campfire of people who are like-minded or just sort of a warm good feeling that anybody can experience the holy spirit is the spirit of the living god and he delights to come and empower us for this life to give us warmth light hope life and above all courage um, to obey and courage um, to step out in faith throughout this life um, I've read again and again the Chronicles of Narnia and I was rereading them to my daughter recently and there's an image that C.S. Lewis uses there that's so beautiful for the um, the sense of what the Holy Spirit is like. And he, some of the children, when they're feeling alone or afraid, well, they're always feeling alone or afraid, but in the presence of Aslan, uh, the Jesus figure, the children come forward and Aslan breathes on them just like Jesus breathed on his first disciples, just like we consider the Holy Spirit the breath of God. Um, and this breath, this holy wind um, upon these children gives them courage, <laughs> makes their fears go away, helps them in the moment beyond their own abilities. So again, we ask for the Holy Spirit. If you've never asked, then I would say ask God to give you his Holy Spirit. And then if you have asked God for his Holy Spirit, ask him again. And you can ask him as many times as you want. It's not as though you asked once and you received him and now you're done and you should have just hung on to the Holy Spirit because we are broken vessels. And that image is something that we are meant to use a lot to understand our own selves. We're broken vessels who leak. We are like a sponge filled with the life-giving water of the Holy Spirit, that living water that Jesus says will flow out of the belly of the believer. And yet we're, we dry out, just like when I haven't done the dishes often enough and the sponge dries out on the side of the sink. Without the living water of the Holy Spirit, we dry out. And so we ask again, come again, Lord Jesus, and breathe on me, O breath of God. Give me your own spirit and give me again that, um, that truth of the gospel. Speak the truth of your love your gracious, forgiving love over me that I might receive again your spirit. The two go hand in hand, the grace and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also the spirit of sonship. Moving on in chapter 8, um, Paul goes in verse 12, he says, Brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And he continues on, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is a word that's mentioned throughout Scripture in the Gospels, mentioned again by Paul in Galatians chapter 4, um, this Aramaic vocative for Father, Abba, 
Father. It is a wonderful cry, the heart cry of someone who has the Holy Spirit. As he says, it's the Spirit of God himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And we know it. We know that we have that spirit of adoption because we call out to God. Abba, Father, we feel as though in Christ we can call him our Father and we can call upon him for his help. Um, About this little word, Abba, Father, Luther, Martin Luther wrote, this is but a little word, and yet notwithstanding, it comprehends all things. The mouth speaks not, but the affection of the heart speaks after this manner. Although I am oppressed with anguish and terror on every side and seem to be forsaken and utterly cast away from your presence, yet I am thy child and thou art my father for Christ's sake. I am beloved because of the beloved. John Wesley also, when he uh, came to understand his conversion to faith, the whole crisis that brought about his conversion, which happened incidentally while he was reading and studying Romans and Luther's commentary on Romans, John Wesley, um, in his own words, what happened when he was converted, he says that he exchanged the faith of a servant for the faith of a son. That freedom, when we're loved so well, to enter into the presence of our God, to trust that he's not mad at us, um, even if we're experiencing suffering or even if we've sinned again. He's certainly not surprised by it. And this is where Paul goes next in chapter 8. Whenever someone comes to me and they're dealing with something beyond their own ability to endure, those kinds of suffering that you see and that you read about on the news or you watch on the news and you just get sick to your stomach that this actually exists in the world. That kind of suffering and any kind of suffering, because sometimes you might see your own suffering, you might say, well, I've got a low-grade suffering. I don't have it as bad as she does, so I should just get over it, right? Or we think if we tell ourselves that, if we compare our suffering to their suffering, somehow that will make us feel better or help us jumpstart out of feeling sorry for ourselves. But suffering is suffering no matter how you put it. And suffering in some ways um, can be um, used by the enemy to tear us down, or it can be God's means of bringing about fruit in our lives. And Paul will go on to talk about the sufferings of this life, that the Holy Spirit is is given to help us in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of this overlap of the ages. And Paul talks about it in light of three groanings in verses 18 through, um, let's see, 18 through 27. He's going to talk about three groanings. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Uh, And then he goes on in verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This groaning of creation... And this uh, is, comes from the suffering in the world that exists between the gap, because of the gap between the way things ought to be and the way things are. Um, if you're an idealist like myself, then you see this all the time, and it's painful to see. We experience this gap between the way things ought to be and the way things are when we watch the news, when we hear about the terrible things done in the world. Um, this is where, how we understand economic inequalities, how we understand cancer, or sexual violence, the horrors of genocide, um, the terror of political unrest and dictatorships, or even just people who say mean things, 
we understand them in the light of the way the world is not how it should be because sin entered into the world through the, through the sin of Adam and Eve. The sin affects all of creation. Um, this is about our sin, but it's also about the sin of other people and how both affect us as we're trying to live our own way, all of us, we're trying to live our own way under our own rule as tiny and stupidly proud despots instead of submitting to God's rule and God's reign. This gap can be described as a creation gone out of control. Things fall apart. And so Paul starts here with the groaning of all creation. All of creation is longing for its own healing and its own restoration. And this will not happen completely until Jesus returns. And the church, then the sons and daughters of God, are revealed to all of creation through our resurrection of the dead, from the dead and through our official adoption as God's sons and daughters. This groaning is a part of the labor pains, as Paul describes it here. We don't know when the labor will end and when the baby will come, and we're in the midst of that painful suffering now, and yet we know that there will be a joyful outcome. There will be everlasting joy and no more sorrow or suffering. Our tears will be wiped away. Because of the coming joy, the current pain will be forgotten. And so we grow, all of creation groans in longing for that restoration, that full restoration, which has been promised, which has been secured through Jesus' resurrection, and yet which we still await. And the groaning is also inward in the heart of the believer. In verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for, the adoption as, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. But who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Again, the gap between the way things ought to be and the way things are is very palpably present to us in our own lives. Um, we look forward to our final glorification. We will finally at the last day be perfect even as Jesus is perfect. We will be holy once and for all. And this is the second groaning that Paul describes. In our suffering, in our sin, we long and hope we wait eagerly and patiently for this promised future reality. And there's a third groaning in the midst of this because the Holy Spirit groans for us on our behalf. The Spirit, Paul goes on in verse 26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Again, as you pray, you probably ask for things, and you should ask for things, but you recognize that your own knowledge of what's going on in any given situation is imperfect. And so that's why we say, thy will be done. And that's in the gap between our knowledge of what the perfect way things ought to be and our perception of what that perfection would be. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And Paul uses that word again, groaning, to look at what um, the Holy Spirit is doing as we pray. The Holy Spirit is interceding on our behalf. Jesus is interceding at the right hand of the Father. And God brings about his own will and his own purposes in our lives and in our world. And in the moment, sometimes that's not the right answer, according to us. You know, the answer that we'd hoped for, um, the answer to our prayers. We don't always get our prayers answered according to our will, but rather according to the Father's will. And that's how we can look back in hindsight. Many years later, maybe God will give us the grace to see what he was doing in and through the circumstances of our lives that did not happen the way we wanted them to happen. 
Well, I've got to continue because I'm only thus far in chapter 8. And chapter 8 is probably my favorite chapter in all of Scripture. You could just read it. I could read it every day. I mean, you could say that about all of Scripture, and you should. But this passage is one to take close to your heart and to read again and again. And with that in mind, I'm literally going to read all of verses 31 through 39 because Paul is not just someone writing out good theology. He's actually a preacher, and it's actually meant to be read aloud. Um, It was read aloud to those first Christians who heard it. Paul, again, is going to underscore our freedom from condemnation and our freedom from the separation um, that sin causes. No longer will will we be separated from God's love. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I'm not going to say anything else because Paul has said it all. Nothing can separate us from God's wonderful, saving, forgiving, um, sacrificial, compassionate love in Jesus Christ. That is our inheritance. That is our ongoing reality as we're putting our trust in him, believing in him, and trusting in him um, today. Again, we are free. As Luther says, it's Christ's love that makes us triumphant through our love for him. What a mystery that God would love us so much that he would want to be with us for all eternity and that he would sacrifice so much in order for for that to become a reality. This mysterious love of God is really my title and my topic for these three chapters, four chapters, and I'm going to spend the next 10 minutes looking at chapters 9 through 11, which is impossible because chapters 9 through 11 uh, are such some of the hardest passages of all of scripture, but I'll give you a little summary an overview. Paul is concerned. Paul here, remember, is preaching and sending this letter to Jewish and Gentile Christian believers in Rome. And there is always, whenever there are two kinds of groups of people, even in the church, there's going to be friction. There's going to be misunderstanding. There's going to be devaluing of one another. Unfortunately, that's just how sin works. And Paul is trying to cut through that and eradicate that. And so what Paul is doing is he's going to elevate the value of being Jewish and say, even though salvation doesn't come through observing the Jewish law, or being um, biologically Jewish, there's still some benefit to being Jewish. So he's going to minister to and bless those Jewish Christians and say all is not for nothing. You have something as a Jewish believer that's worth contributing and that's beautiful. But also at the same time, he's going to say to the Gentile Christians then, 
you've been brought in by grace through faith and you have um, no leg to stand on if you're going to be proud and haughty about it because it appeared as though the Gentile believers in the Roman church were looking down on the Jewish believers. In most of the other Christian churches around the Mediterranean, it seems to have been the opposite way around, that the Jewish believers were trying to, or the Judaizers, some, not all Jewish believers were Judaizers, but that the Judaizers were trying to make Gentile Christians obey the Jewish law. And Paul had to say, no way, no how, they don't have to, they've been saved by grace through faith. There's no Jesus plus anything that will equal their salvation. All they need is Jesus and faith in him. But here now he's saying to the Gentiles, he's trying to tap down the Gentile believers in their arrogance and say, listen, don't devalue the root of what has brought about the fruit of uh, God's salvation in Jesus Christ. And um, so in order to bring about this harmony, and he'll go on in chapters 12 through 16 to talk about this harmony. We know that there was some conflict because they were people, but we also know that there was probably some conflict because of the way he describes and calls upon them to love one another and to forego their own will um, for one another. But again, Paul here is setting out to answer some of the questions that Jews and Gentile Christians would have about each other, Jewish and Gentile Christians. So first of all, why don't more Jews believe in Jesus? If Jesus truly is the Jewish Messiah, why don't more Jews believe in Jesus? And Paul will answer this question by looking at Old Testament scriptures again and again that point to the reality of there being a remnant of Israel, only a remnant of Israel. And they're all throughout the Old Testament. Once you start looking for them, you will find them. He gives the example of Elijah and the prophets uh, in the time of the prophets of Baal. That There were so many, um, so many Israelites who had not bent the knee to this false god and as a way of Pointing forward, in Paul's day and age, there were only a few, proportionally, only a few Jews believed in Jesus, and yet he's saying they are the ones that truly understand the faith of Abraham, that faith, um, that righteousness of Abraham that comes about through faith um, and not through works. So again, more Jews don't believe in Jesus because God is allowing their hearts to be hardened Because God is whittling them down, there will only be a remnant for a while. And then he says that the Gentiles are grafted in. He uses agricultural imagery to talk about that grafting in. And he uses some language to suggest that there's a different Israel than just biological Israel. So in chapter 9, again, he says these promises are fulfilled in Christ, the promises that have been given to the Israelites. But in verse 6, chapter 9, verse 6, he says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. What does this mean? This means that, um, that becoming and belonging to the people of God is something that happens through faith, and it's not something that happens because of anything we do or because of any biological heritage that we have. So the Jewish people were identifying themselves as the people of God according to their biological descendants from Abraham and their participation in the Old Covenant through the sign of circumcision, their works um, demonstrating, and, and then their just simple heritage. And Paul is saying, no, not all who are descended from Israel or Jacob belong to Israel, only those who believe in Jesus Christ. So there's a new understanding of what Israel means, what it means to be a part of the true Israel, the true people of God. 
Again, this is hard. He uses all this language of election. That's one of the reasons why I'm not going into these passages further, because I don't want to talk about election. But we could have a whole other class on election. But no, really, there is a lot of talk about election, God's choosing, God choosing to do what he's going to do. Um, And in the midst of God choosing to do what he will do, he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And he talks about the hardening of some and the mercy, uh, um, God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Um, And this is a hard thing to hear about the Lord doing. This right here is the heart of the doctrine of election. It's hard for us to hear it because we say, well, what about those who are hardened, whose hearts don't believe in God? And this ultimately is our pastoral issue as we're reading these passages. What about the people in our lives who don't believe in Jesus Christ? What's going to happen to them? Is it their fault that they don't believe if God is sovereignly choosing? Um, And so Paul here has this same kind of grief. He calls it great grief and unceasing pain in his heart over his lost or unsaved brethren. That is so much like our own pain as we contemplate these doctrines of predestination and election. And yet, in the midst of this, two things that we should remember. Um, Well, three things. First of all, Paul himself doesn't ever answer or offer a logical solution to the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility for sin. He creates this tension, but he doesn't resolve them. He is content to hold these two truths in tension without reconciling them. And so if that's good enough for the Apostle Paul, then it's going to have to be good enough for us as well, unfortunately. Um, Another thing, another point to make, Craig Parton, who's an apologist, who's wonderful and a great preacher and came here this Lent, preached a wonderful sermon. It's called, it's on our website from March 21st. It's called Apologetics and Salvation. He said, as we enter into the house of salvation, on the outside, it says, come, to as many as received him, he gave um, life. So there's this call for personal commitment, a call for belief and decision. And yet inside, on the wall inside the house of salvation, there's a different sign. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Um, that again, uh, we, we call upon Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. By grace we have been saved through faith. The doctrine of election and pre- predestination is tied integrally to our salvation by grace through faith. They cannot be divorced one from another. It is not of ourselves that we have been saved. It has been planned from all eternity. Um, so we don't cooperate in our salvation in its hindsight that sees that. In the moment, we press for decision that someone might come to faith, and yet afterwards, when we look at it, we see that God was pursuing us all along. Our salvation originates with him. He is the subject of the sentence of our salvation. God saves us. We are the object. We are not the doer of our salvation. And if we thought that it rested upon us and our right decision at the right time in the right way, then um, all would be lost. So ultimately, predestination in this view of God's divine sovereignty, which encompasses all of our human decision-making, he is eternal after all. He knows the end from the beginning, and he knows sideways. He knows all of it. Um, God himself is holy. He is sovereign. He knows what will happen before it happens. And so we have to trust again in his sovereign choice, in the mystery of the way his love operates in the world. And Paul's final caveat is just to say, we don't know what he's going to do. 
We don't know what the end will look like. And he says, I think, I believe that God is going to bring in many more Jews to believe in Jesus before Jesus returns. And he uses a word, fullness. Jesus will not return until the fullness of the Jewish believers who are ordained to believe in Jesus believe. Um, and there will be an influx of Jewish believers towards the end. Um, even so, even as all of the Gentiles who are ordained for belief in Christ, um, until the fullness of Gentiles believe, um, not until the fullness of Gentiles believe, will Jesus return. Again, there is this sense of God knowing the number from the very beginning of there being fullness as a, a qualitative as well as a quantitative word. Again, God is seeking to save all, and yet not all will agree to be saved. And so he leaves us to our own devices. He's a gentleman. He's not going to force himself upon those who don't want them. Um, and so, again, there is this sense of this clarity. There, isn't, there won't be universal salvation. We might wish for it. Um, we might want all to be saved, and God wants all to be saved, but he knows the reality of human sin and brokenness, that not all will receive, not all will unwrap the beautiful gift of God's work on their behalf half, that gift that sits under the Christmas tree and for some will lie unopened. And so what do we do for that? We pray. We pray for those whom we love who don't know Christ yet. We pray and we ask for him to intervene on their behalf. And we marvel. We marvel at God's mysterious love. Um, Paul ends this passage, these passages on um, predestination and on the mystery of the remnant of Israel being saved and the in influx of Gentiles being grafted into what God has already done um, by, by f he f finishes with a doxology. This mysterious love of God that he would love us so much that he would die for us and that he would love us and choose us for salvation is is only a mystery to be received and to be marveled at. And it, it, he ends in praise and worship. He ends with a doxology at the end of chapter 11. Um, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that mysterious love of yours which has captured us and grips us from which we can never be separated. And we ask, Lord, that your love would pervade all of the earth, that every single broken person in this broken world would hear of your love and would receive your love. And Lord, would you have mercy on them. And even so, we ask, Lord, um, for the impossible, that somehow you would break through to their hardened hearts. And yet, even so, we trust you we are the creature and you are the creator. We are the clay and you are the potter. And so we say, thy will be done. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.